You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Part one of our two-part series. Thank you for tuning back in to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. We're doing something a little bit different this time. Um, I guess we're still just having one guest on for an interview, but there's actually going to be a follow-up to this with a, uh, I don't even want to say an alternative perspective, but a uh, a different perspective. A different perspective. Yeah, it's not so, really alternative, but, but it's different. Yeah, but a lot of our listeners have requested probably the number one thing that's been requested is uh is more information on deer management um primarily how to how to keep deer away from their gardens or or just even in woodlands and all that kind of stuff just trying to manage deer because where we are in new jersey um specifically suburban new jersey uh they can be a bit of a nuisance so it's yeah you know not even you know growing up in in pennsylvania I remember areas in northeast Philly where there'd be a small clearing turning around and counting Mm -hmm. 200 deer, you know, and then having them disperse and not even realizing where they went because there was was no area for them to go. So Mm -hmm. um, we know it's a it's it's a concern for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but there is an again, I don't want to say it's an alternative, but there is another not even viewpoint, but another approach where you actually have people usually in rural parts of the countries where they own a lot of land and uh, if, if especially hunters where they actually want to bring in deer and um, I've heard a lot of podcast guests on some of these hunting focus podcasts where uh, traditionally if you guys remember the the National Wild Turkey Federation episode they're talking about food plots well a lot of these deer management um, technicians are using a lot of natives with these food plots and uh, in fact, they're saying that's probably even more important than the food. The, the non-native stuff they're planting, the the soybeans and clovers, that's the ice cream. But a lot of this native stuff, that's their salads and, and the staples of what they need for their diet. And, and it's, yeah. a, it's a double-edged sword because yeah. on one hand, you know, if you're trying to lure them in and feed them, native plants are their native food native food that's Mm -hmm. their native palate but if if you're trying to plant natives and and keep them (laughs) keep them safe and healthy you're also attracting deer in so um it'll be really interesting we've had a lot of requests for this so i'm I'm really excited so um just to go back with something that we touched on on the last podcast so i was was checking in on our vpn experiment to see if we had any listens on croatia and all week i kept going no listens no listens you know, we, we had picked up another state and, and actually like four more countries mm-hmm. and uh, nothing. So I, I realized today that there was a listen in Croatia. Yeah. And that was me. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was, that was, that was, was my first experience. I was checking too and look, I, Fran's more into looking at the countries and states that I am. And I looked and I'm like, oh, no one actually listened from there. So I went and made sure that there was at least one. So there was one. But, but And really just to make sure it worked. I didn't, I'm new to the whole VPN private network thing so i didn't know how it worked or I, on one hand it I'm, worked i'm happy i'm disappointed that it was you <laughs> but on one hand that it does work so that mm-hmm. could really be why we have listens in all these different countries yeah. that that i don't see it being relative 
relative, yeah. really, or you know, and it's still such a small part of our, our listener it, base. It but. is. I think what was it? Ninety five percent of our listeners yeah. are in the United States. We kind of so. geek out over this stuff. A little we bit. do. I really enjoy this. <laughs> that's that's what occupies my free time. So, I for the longest time, I just thought our listeners were lazy and not trying it, or they weren't using VPNs. Yeah. But at least we know what it is. But do you want to pick a new country for this week? Now that now that we know it's possible, is there another country you want to take over? I'll probably just stick with Croatia. Yeah. Okay, let's yeah, let's build it up in Croatia. Yeah. We want to be the number one <laughs> podcast total in Croatia. So. <laughs> but but anyway, I guess it's time to get started. So here's part one of uh, of our two part series. Hopefully, that next part's next week. But we gotta check in with our guests to make, make sure it's still possible we're, next we're week. We're hoping we in, in case we I don't think we mentioned it. Now is the time of the year we're going to try to go back to one episode a week. Mm-hmm. So we're ramping up. It, things are slowing down at the nursery. We're going to try to ramp back up. We really enjoyed doing one a week and we think the listeners mm-hmm. do too. So we're going to try to get back on that schedule. So this is the start of it where we're trying through all of July and all of August to bring you one a week. So hopefully <laughs> next week is part 2, but yeah. If if we can't put it to, pull it together in time, it will be in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it will it will be soon. It won't be far behind. So, and I guess without any uh, any further ado, we'd like to introduce Dr. Jay Kelly from Raritan Valley Community College, who's done a tremendous amount of research on uh, on deer management, especially in the understory of forests right here in New Jersey. And uh, and even though it's right here in New Jersey, it, it probably applies to most of the Mid Atlantic, where you're finding that suburban. Um, suburban areas where you're created where we've created a lot of edge habitat and uh and without that uh jay why don't you introduce introduce yourself and and give us a little bit of your background sure Uh, i'm a professor of biology and environmental science at raritan valley community college like you said and for those of you that aren't familiar raritan valley is located in central new jersey in somerset county Uh, i've been teaching there for about 12 13 years but i'm a new jersey native born and bred in central jersey and have been working in the forests and other wildlands of the state for the past 25 years, um, partly for the state government and more recently just doing my own research with students. Um, and this issue that you guys are bringing up today about overabundant deer and its effects on the environment, I think are really one of the most pressing concerns for conservation of wild species in New Jersey and really throughout the northeast uh, of this, this continent. Um, so thank you very much for bringing it to everybody's attention. No problem. You know, it's and, and we've, we've known it's an issue, but it really hit home. I, I was listening to a talk being done by Dr. Emil DeVito of um, New Jersey Conservation Foundation. He was just talking about walking through areas that he's been walking through forever and how the understory of forests have changed and where there used to be maple leaf viburnum. There's no more maple leaf viburnum and just the changes that he has seen over time. And he started, you know, from a firsthand experience in a broader sense, it really hit home. So just and and being born and bred in New Jersey for you how how has the deer density changed per acre in New Jersey over say like the last 20 years um well i think with with the deer population it's kind of important to take a a bigger picture view of things that okay. you know the the levels of deer that we're seeing today uh, may be excessive but in many ways that's the the, um, the, the result of a, a conservation success story about 100 mm-hmm. years ago New Jersey uh, had pretty much no deer left due to uh, the legacy of commercial hunting that had taken place up through the end of the 1800s. And then uh, that was banned, and eventually, with, through the work of generations of biologists that reintroduced deer into New Jersey and implemented more, uh, I think, effective 
uh, game regulations, we saw the recovery of the deer populations throughout the state. So by the early 1970s, deer had recovered to what are thought to be the background numbers of deer in the wild, which is about 10 deer per square mile. Okay. But because of how things had changed in New Jersey and throughout the region, the numbers continued to climb far above that. So um, by the mid-1980s, the deer had reached about 20 per square mile. The last statewide assessment that was done by the state government took place in 1999 with the governor's report on deer, and that one uh, identified about 38 per square mile on average across the state. But deer numbers are really variable from places like central New Jersey to the Pine Barrens and the mountains up north. And in central portions of the state where we are here, uh, there were as many as about 76 per square mile. Wow. And then the survey that we've been doing for townships and park systems in the past five years have regularly found deer populations in excess of 100 per square mile. And mm-hmm. in some places, it's over 300 per square mile. Wow. So if, you know, the, yeah. the background numbers of deer, you know, that the, the ecosystems are uh, kind of adapted to handle where everything is more or less in balance are about 10 per square mile. And we know that's the case because when deer numbers get higher than that, you start to see the preferred forage species disappear. You know, the, the tastiest lilies and orchids will disappear from the forest when they're above 10 per square mile. So if you, if, you know, if everything's adapted for a 10 per square mile and you have over 300 per square mile, you can imagine what yeah. that's going to mean for the, the other species trying to live in the forest. Well, a, a lot has had to have happened for that change to occur. So which is it's it's running like a ton of questions through my head but how given the lack of habitat which i know is an an issue but how is how is there enough food to sustain them to continue to to grow this population because you figure they have less habitat but there's is it more per square mile just because they're packed in tighter is like uh, it's amazing well that's that actually a, a misconception so okay. deer are are fairly um resilient and, and adaptable species, and, and there isn't actually a lack of habitat. If anything, there's an increase in habitat relative to what there was historically. Okay. So deer are, are what we think of as an edge species. Yes. They tend to occur on the edges of forest ecosystems in particular, um, and that's for a couple reasons. There's, there tends to be more sunlight hitting you know, those areas so the vegetation is denser and the things the deer like to eat are present there, but it also provides them with the cover that they need from predators that they can escape to and hide out in the forest. And so typically deer will stay in the forest and hide out during the daytime. And then at night they come out and feed on the edges of forests or in, in open areas around them, in farm fields and gardens and people's, you know, landscaping and so forth. And so, um, you know, with forest fragmentation that uh, took place during the agricultural era in New Jersey up till like the 1920s or 30s, and then later on, through suburban development, we actually have mm-hmm. far more edge habitats than, than there previously were in the past. And then on top of that, they, we've gotten rid of all the predators, the natural predators at least, of wolves and cougars in particular that kept the deer populations under check. So, um, you know, the, if you left the, if you didn't provide them with supplemental food resources outside of the forest from our gardens and our farm fields, the deer would probably reach about 20 to 40 per square mile uh, in their in their densities, but without predators and with all the extra food that we're putting out there for them, uh, you know, the the carrying capacity of deer at this point is about 100 per square mile, mm-hmm. and th- that's a problem because again, they're spending a lot of their time in the forests, and the forest species can't handle 100 deer per square mile. You're going to have a, a loss of tremendous numbers of plant species and and the kinds of 
impacts to forest structure and composition that we're seeing today, which is really, you know, balanced at about 10 to 20 deer per square mile. And that was one of the questions that Tom and I were actually discussing. If if you're seeing that kind of forest destruction, I don't want to say destruction, but uh, where they're 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 taking more shrub layer away, that's got to be affecting other animals. Say that that use habitat. I know mm-hmm. when we had the the National Wild Turkey Federation on, they're actually starting to see a decline in in turkey. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it. it and it's not necessarily predator. They don't believe it's it's predator based. Yeah, it's, it was really a lack, lack of of habitat, and some of that is due to, to deer to, browsing. To deer browsing. So it's it's is that playing a major effect on other species? That yeah, absolutely. To- I mean, so um, ecologists refer to that as cascade effects, where mm-hmm. the deer are directly affecting the vegetation, but then all sorts of other species depend on that vegetation for food, and so when the vegetation declines. You start to see declines in the insects that are feeding on the vegetation, in the birds that are feeding on the insects. Um, you also see a loss of bird populations based on what kinds of habitat they need to nest in. So many mm-hmm. of our forest birds, for example, put their nests directly on the ground or in the shrubs just above it. And if there's no shrubs and there's no cover to hide the nests, then those bird populations decline. And so we've been seeing really tremendous declines in all of our shrub and ground nesting birds in a tremendous diversity of our insects, and especially caterpillars, um, and in all the birds that feed on those species as well. So it's not surprising to hear that they've been seeing declines for turkeys because we've been seeing it with songbirds and many other species for decades now. What What is giving deer the competitive advantage over, like, this same food source for other species or, or coverage? Like, they're obviously they're growing in numbers they're able to consume this and and take away from other species they they have some sort of competitive advantage somewhere do you, would you have an idea of what that may be or what you've seen well the deer don't really have that much competition for this particular thing that they feed on i mean okay. 500 mm-hmm. years ago we had bison in our forests and we had elk um those no longer exist today um so the deer don't have direct competitors but what they do effect in terms of competition is the ability of native plants to compete with non-native plants. Mm -hmm. So deer have a really strong preference for feeding on native plant species, and they they will eat introduced in exotic plant species, but to a far less degree, and typically when there's only nothing else to eat. And so by suppressing all the native plant species, that gives the invasive plant species uh, a distinct competitive advantage in taking over our forests and other wildlands, and we've seen that play out over and over again. Is is there any other effects that that they're having on forest overall health? Um, I, I, I guess that's sure. We have absolutely. We've seen you know from our studies, we've been for the past six years looking at how our forests have changed since the mid twentieth century. We followed up on about sixty five forests that were studied by Rutgers researchers throughout central and northern New Jersey. Um, up to 1972 or so when the deer population had gotten back to what we thought it should be. And we compared it to those same forests to how they look today. And what we found was a 75 to 80% decline in tree regeneration. So the trees mm-hmm. aren't able to reproduce either. Right. And so if that trend continues and we continue to have a, the absence of young trees in the understory, then we conceivably could lose our forests in the future. Yeah. And we've actually been seeing that play out in some places uh, in a lot of our younger forests that are dominated by ashes, for example, yeah. the emerald ash borer has killed off all the ash trees. And um, now normally that you know wouldn't be necessarily the end of the world because you'd have younger trees beneath them that would be able to grow up and fill their, their place. 
uh, same thing happened as, you know, the Dutch elm disease and chestnut blight killed those species mm-hmm. in the past in New Jersey. The forests haven't disappeared because other things were, were waiting in the wings to replace them. Yeah. But in these forests, there is zero understory. There's no young trees. There's no native shrubs. It's mostly invasive exotic species. And so when the canopy of ash trees has been decimated, we're actually seeing these places turn into thickets of invasive shrubs and vines. Um, and if these trends continue, you know, on the order of a couple more decades, we're going to start to see significant losses of our forests and, a, and a, a real conversion of them into shrub and thicket-like ecosystems because there's no young trees um, there to replace the, the larger trees as they die, either from disturbances like invasive introduced pests and diseases through, you know, increased uh, severity of storms from climate change or just from natural, you know, mortality. Eventually trees get old and die like anything else. And the forests are going to depend on young trees to fill their ranks. And right now, there are no young trees in the majority of our forests, and And, certainly not enough to replace them as they die. And that's something I've noticed, Just, and I'm sure a lot of people have noticed, when you walk through the forest, uh, a good indicator to me that there's a lot of deer there is if you can see, well, definitely more than 100 yards, if you can see probably even more than 50 yards, that means that you've lost a lot of that shrub layer and you've lost a lot of the, the... regeneration that's going to happen just because deer are over browsing it in fact just on uh on one of our farms walking through the forest uh, like edge at the back of the farm um you can see a long long way and there's really not much growing in there and i did find a japanese barberry growing in there but well, you, you know it's funny you said that because uh the last episode we had carolyn Clava from sourland conservancy mm-hmm. and they were saying that their density is is over a hundred a uh, hundred deer per mile yeah, yeah and um, I was just hiking there. Like after after we had her on, we were hiking there, and and the first clearing we came to came right up to a buck, <laughs> and where the where there was a down tree, there was barberry growing. Mm-hmm. You know, so you you see the effects immediately. Like, and that's, um, you know, and those are things that they're not eating. Like uh, Crystal Lake and and Burlington County mm-hmm. Parks, there's big big understories of burning bush where they don't belong, and that's that's surviving well but none of the other understory yeah. is there. You know, in, in our forest today, in, in terms of the shrub and, and the woody vines, there's actually more invasive cover than there is native cover at this point, if you compare it back mm-hmm. to the mid-20th century and those studies that were done that I talked about. Um, the herb layer is holding its own a little better, but we're really seeing a, a dramatic conversion of our of our forest ecosystems into, um, you know, completely foreign assemblages of plant species that have no place here. And, and the important thing, as far as that goes, aside from competing with native plants, is those species don't offer the same value for wildlife and for other ecosystem services because a lot of the insects that, you know, live in the forest will, will not choose to eat those plant species. They're, they're really adapted to, to, to uh, find their food based on specific chemical cues, you know, you, that a native plant might be releasing. You get rid of that native plant, and that insect can no longer live in the forest. And so we have a loss of uh, forage value for insects and other wildlife. We have a loss of nesting habitat for birds. Other impacts that you had, had asked about are you can see without all that vegetation that should be there in the forest, we're seeing increases in uh, erosion. You know, soil is washing mm-hmm. away. You've got increases in nutrient loss from these ecosystems. You've got soil compaction from massive herds of deer moving through these places in some cases. So we're really seeing a, a, a radical transformation both biologically and in the physical landscape of these places due to the continual overabundance of deer, um, you know, decade after decade at this point. You know, and, and, and not only that, if you think about it, if there's a, a lack of, of 
native understory and you're getting exotics coming in, that's allowing for exotic um, invasive pests, insects yeah. and pests too. Like we're seeing that with um, the spotted lanternfly right now yeah. and with tree of heaven and, and you see a tree of heaven everywhere. I mean, they've, they've naturalized here very quickly. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword that way too, because it's mm-hmm. bringing in all the exotics, which have an advantage over our native. Yeah. So, um, is, are we, are we at this point, the apex predator for, for deer? Is it, is it human? Have they, at least in New Jersey, is there is there yeah and in fact it's probably our cars i was gonna say it's probably it's probably cars are <laughs> now, even in places that are hunted the the towns and and park systems that i've been working with they keep track of how many deer the hunters are taking compared to local vehicle collisions in most cases the vehicles are taking more than the hunters are at this point wow but in either case it, it definitely it is humans that that are the, the primary predators at this point and unfortunately we just aren't as efficient as wolves at uh driving down deer populations in the way that the forest need us to and I, I, you know, I know this is silly, but I guess we'll never see a reintroduction of wolves because of so many other factors. It's mm-hmm. too, we're too populated of a state, I would guess. I, I think there would be a lot of people opposed of. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, I think you're right. Um, you know, the, the most successful example on the continent that, that I'm aware of of wolf reintroduction happened in Yellowstone mm-hmm. National Park in the 1990s. And they've seen really just an incredible transformation of the ecosystem in those places as a result over the the next 10 or 20 years. The elk and deer populations um, changed their movement patterns, the populations declined, and they saw a resurgence of native plant um, species and the insects that fed on those plants and then the wildlife that fed on them. Um, There was a reduction in um, soil erosion and a restoration of the streams through those ecosystems. I mean, it was just a wholesale correction of the kinds of negative decline in trends that we've been seeing in New Jersey just as a result of, you know, mm-hmm. reinstating that, that keystone predator that had been missing because of its, you know, extirpation by people. Yeah. So I think you're right that it's not going to happen in New Jersey anytime soon. Um, they, I, I've heard that they attempted a reintroduction of wolves in, in Yellowstone, um, sorry, in Great Smoky Mountain National Park okay. uh, after they were so successful in Yellowstone, and it failed because of conflicts with local domestic animals and people, um, they also had the, the wolves were breeding with wild domestic dogs, and uh-huh. I think one of the more important factors was they also picked up distemper and other diseases from domestic dog populations. Mm-hmm. So um, if, it, if it's not going to work in Smoky Mountains, I don't think it's going to work very easily. No. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I know a, a big concern is them roaming because predators will roam. Uh, but I, there's probably enough food here where they don't need to roam. <laughs> yeah. There's enough yeah. access <laughs> where they could – they yeah. could just pick them off and not have to go anywhere. Like, and that's what I'm wondering. It when you get to those numbers, I don't, I don't know that the wolves would need to necessarily look elsewhere uh, for food. But eventually, I guess over time, it would be. You would hope mm-hmm. that would balance out, but I don't know. Is is there? Well, will deer population is there? Can they level off on their own? Is or well, right now they've leveled off. At, you know, as I mentioned, about a hundred per square mile is what they've leveled off at in, in suburban areas in central New Jersey. Um, other factors can cause them to go down. Um, you know, there's parts of the Midwest, they have um, diseases that are affecting some of mm-hmm. the deer, and in smaller portions of New Jersey, deer have been uh, affected by disease as well. But uh, nothing that's really 
causing them to go back down to the levels that we need them to for to restore our forests. And I, I would imagine a lot of that is because of how successful our agricultural system has been. And um, I, I talk about our farm again, and it's really the farmer next door. Um, when I've walked along their fields, you see all of the deer damage that have been done to, well, I, there was a corn crop last year that when it should have been eight feet tall, there was parts that were two or three feet tall just because you had deer coming out every night just eating back those plants. And, um, and he was upset about it. But you have something that's really high nutrient that's um, easily yeah. accessible to them. And well, you think about why our human population's gotten so big as well. It's because how successful our agricultural system has been, especially in the United States. And, uh, and yeah, not just agriculture, but landscaping, you know. Yeah. We have our, yeah. all of our gardens and landscaping that get, you know, watered. Uh, they're fertilized, and so you've got all this lush vegetation that's just there for the deer to feast on. And then on top of that, in, especially in suburban settings, they're also refuges from hunters. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very difficult to hunt in dense suburban areas, but the deer can live perfectly happily in those places. Um, and so, you know, it's just kind of the, the perfect storm of, of all the things that kept deer populations in check have kind of fallen by the wayside, and all the things that deer need to increase their populations are being fully provided for them. And so that's really what it boils down to and why we're seeing the, the tremendous increases across the, the region uh, in deer populations. One of the things I was curious, you know, typically deer would graze, say, open meadow, and then they go back into the uh, the forest for shelter. And that's, you know, typically they'll go in the forest. Their excrement will actually fertilize the, the ground in the forest. If there's an overpopulation and an over an abundance of deer excrement, is that changing – is, does that have an effect on the overall forest health, where it's getting? That's too a good much question. Nutrients? I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I haven't okay. seen any research on that question, but I think it's definitely something that um, makes sense and is worthy of consideration. That's that. Sorry, that one just popped into yeah. my head. I, <laughs> I just had a question pop into my head too, where it's uh, a, someone else I'd heard speaking about um, deer overpopulation, and they had tied it to earthworms, and. I don't remember the exact connection. I think it was the more compact soils were better for earthworms. I don't remember. Um, earthworms also primarily being non-native. Have you done any research on the connections between deer and, and earthworms? Not that they have a, a unbreakable bond, but I think I've read at least that they've uh, they've seen some correlations between deer populations um, linking up with earthworm populations. No, I haven't personally studied earthworms. Um, I, I do know that earthworms have been found to facilitate increases in invasive plant species mm-hmm. and have also been associated with declines of native plants and, and even amphibians and other wildlife species as well. Okay. Um, but I'm not aware of any direct connection between the earthworms and deer per se. Yeah. I think they're both just having um, major effects on, on these the, the same victims are our native plants. Mm. I'll have to look that guy up and find it and share it in our, our Facebook right. group. And I, would, see, see. I would like to see that. I know I heard something about it, and I, it just popped in my head, oh, yeah, this whole earthworm thing. But G- Given our predicament with where we're at with deer populations, especially here in New Jersey, um, is there anything that can be done to fix the problem? Are we too far past where we can fix it um, without a predator? No, I think – I think there's a lot that we can do, and partly it depends on what scale you're talking about. You know, if you're thinking about the state as a whole, obviously there's different kinds of policies and initiatives we have to think about than if you're thinking about managing a a preserve system, you know, a county park system or something like that, or a township 
preserve system. And similarly, there's different kinds of things that you can implement at the local level in your own property if you're just trying to, you know, create a little Noah's Ark or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is you're trying to grow in in your yard, um, there's different tools and techniques you can use. Well, what... Um, what say say a, a a homeowner with a heavy near a heavy deer population? What what can they do to to protect their landscapes? Well, the most effective thing you can do is just create a physical barrier and keep the deer out. You know, and so deer exclosures, you know, a fence of some sort, um, is by far the most effective thing you can do to successfully grow plants, especially native mm-hmm. plants and and tasty vegetables. Um, unfortunately, that can be expensive on larger scales, and so um, for you know larger preserves of thousands of acres and such, it's really difficult to find the funding to, to install a deer exposure. And then on, on top of that, at the larger level, you know we don't want to necessarily keep deer out completely. The deer are part of the ecosystem; mm-hmm. they help you know create niches for other species to occur in the forest when they're at the proper levels. So it's kind of tricky to think about how to manage them above you know small scales in your own garden or your property. But for the homeowner, that's clearly the, the most effective thing you can do. And there's a lot of different types of fencing that might make it more affordable for the, the landowner. You know, we typically, when we create deer exclosures for local parks and, uh, and on, our, on our campus at the college, we've used the eight-foot plastic fencing. I'm not a big fan of plastic, but it's really easy to install mm-hmm. and to repair, and it's much more affordable in ways that we couldn't have afforded for the, the welded wire and metal fencing that is more durable, but it's much more difficult and expensive. Yeah, we we've seen a lot of uh, people use the tubex tree shelters um, while the plants are young to allow them to grow up to a height that that they'd be safe for a lot of trees. Um, you know, even the the New Jersey uh, Turnpike um, they changed their specs for native plants. I think they want them to be six to eight foot tall, so that the apical meristem is taller than what a deer will browse. Uh, Typically, yeah. so they they try to attack it with just size. If they put it in big enough, you know, it doesn't prevent it from buck rub. But if you use other tree guards, things like that, I know, I think it may be a combination of just all these things. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, to uh, to get some success. Um, well, it's a lot. You know, if, if you're trying to restore a forest on your property, um, it's much more efficient to keep the deer out and let the trees plant themselves mm-hmm. than it is to plant trees and protect them individually. You know, our yeah. research is, we've, we've looked at a number of deer exclosures that have been up for 10 or 20 years in New Jersey. And in a deer exclosure, after four to five years, you get about 4,000 young trees per acre wow. in that forest. And there's no way you, you can plant <laughs> yeah. 4,000 oh. trees per acre in any kind of cost-effective manner. And even if you can afford it, you're going to be doing tons of soil disturbance and everything mm-hmm. else in the process, too. So the, really, the forests are much better at restoring themselves if we can just bring the deer levels, you know, in check. Um, and I think that's true for, you know, stewardship of our forests and public open spaces and parks as well. And, and this is a very passionate subject to a lot of people too because there are people that are against hunting. That's not their values. Mm-hmm. They don't believe in that. So um, that's, that's – I'm sure that has to be tough – from a state level has to be tough to navigate as well. Yeah, there's a very vocal minority of people that um, strongly object to – hunting uh, for any reason and of any kind. Um, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to those views. I was vegetarian myself for 20 years, and I had really strong um, perspectives about that. But I think that the, the need to manage the deer population really is an animal rights issue. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're looking at the loss of millions of songbirds and butterflies and insects that belong in these forests, 
plant species, all, you know, every deer that you remove from the forest, you're allowing thousands of other creatures to live there because that's um, what the deer are taking away from us. So I don't really understand the, you know, from from an ecosystem perspective, um, I, those views don't seem particularly legit- legitimate to me because it really is about mm-hmm. enhancing the lives of these ecosystems and allowing more life to occur there. And then, you know, unfortunately, death is a part of nature, and it allows for, you know, life to occur. And in this case, because things are, are uh, you know, the deer numbers are growing unchecked, it's preventing the lives of countless more animals and plants out there that we really need to return to these places if, if we want to keep these species around and keep these ecosystems functioning the way they should be. I, I agree. I, you know, obviously our ecosystem's out of balance, um, and, and it and typically – <laughs> in a in a functioning ecosystem, it would balance itself out. But we removed the apex predators, um, so it's it's not going to easily balance itself out, and you're you're getting that cascade effect uh, down. So it's I would I would like to see it balance. And you know, my concern, even if if you're able to fence areas up and keep deer out, you're just pushing them to other areas. Um, and I don't know if that will limit their number or just make things worse in other areas. It could increase the amount of of car accidents. <laughs> I, I think you'd have to fence off huge areas mm-hmm. to see any kind of major effects in that regard, and okay. I just don't think that's really realistic. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody's putting up fences in terms of many square miles to the point where it actually increased local deer numbers that significantly where you see those kinds of effects. Okay. You can see effects uh, on really small scales, like, you know, in the perimeter of a deer exclosure, you'll see increased browse and increased trampling as the deer walk around the fence. But um, it doesn't really impact adjacent properties or anything else because the deer numbers are already so excessive in those places that um, the devastation is going to occur either way. Now, are, are you aware of, like, where we're at, deer are a problem? We know there's areas where it's a larger problem. There are areas that it doesn't seem to be affecting in New Jersey, or there's, are there areas where people are like we we don't have a deer problem? Um, there are lower levels of deer in places where there is intact um, forest ecosystems that are not as fragmented. So whether you're down in the Pine Barrens mm-hmm. or up in the forest in the Highlands or on the Kittatinny Ridge, because there's less edge, it tends to support fewer deer. Um, and then in the Pine Barrens, you also have just kind of nor- nutrient-poor ecosystems, and that translates into lower wildlife populations in some cases than in other places as well. But even in those places, we're still seeing levels of deer that are that are too high compared to historic levels and what we need the, the deer populations to be at. So we've done a, a number of deer surveys, surveys up in the mountains in, in these vast forested parts of northern New Jersey, and we're still seeing deer populations between 40 and, or 20 to 60 per square mile uh, and although we haven't done surveys in the Pine Barrens, I do a lot of research with rare plant species like swamp pink and other mm-hmm. rare plants all over the place. And swamp pink's number one threat at this point is, is browse from deer. We're seeing wow. the, the vast majority of swamp pink populations. I surveyed 80 of them um, in the past 10 years, and almost all of them are experiencing severe browse damage. And a lot of the populations now, the plants are only occurring on hummocks in the middle of rivers where the deer have a harder wow. time to get to them. Everything on the banks and any place that the deer can get to it, the swamp pink is declining. So we really have, in New Jersey at least, across the board, a deer problem, although it's certainly more of a problem in some places than it is in others. Um, When you leave New Jersey, 
it's you know it's more complicated. You've got large areas in Pennsylvania and New York where it's intact, contiguous forests and much less edge, um, and so there might be lower deer populations in some of those places. If you go up into the Great Lakes region, there's actually still wolves present there, and so things mm-hmm. might be in better balance in parts of you know Upper Michigan and so forth. Um, but really, we're seeing the same kinds of impacts to forests in New Jersey as you can find anywhere, at least from Boston down to D.C. The entire Northeast Corridor is experiencing more or less the same kinds of changes to the landscape, uh, and the deer populations have responded. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's it's not just here that that the predators are gone. I mean, in Philadelphia, Aramingo Avenue, I believe, is the uh, Native American word for like running of the wolves or something like that area was was known for wolves and and there's there's no wolves there now <laughs> there's there, there's no open property there now and, and jay yeah. you keep bringing up uh edge habitat and i just friend i both know what that is i want to make sure all our listeners know what it is and um i guess the best way to put it is if you imagine you had a a 10 by 10 piece of grid paper in front of you well the edge would be that outside row on all, for the whole perimeter but now, say you took those same hundred squares, but you you basically laid them over like a housing development. So you have a little bit of woods here and a little bit of woods there, and well, now you've increased that edge, so that perimeter is much much wider. While the interior section, the the section that isn't touching as something outside of that square, is now a lot smaller. Um, probably hard for me to demonstrate that over over voice, but. Yeah, this is bad podcasting right now. <laughs> no, not at all. But what makes that that interior forest less uh, less attractive for deer to live in? Uh, well, there um, is typically you know one of the major limiting factors for plant growth is sunlight, right? Mm-hmm. So in the interior of the forest, you can have typically much greater levels of shade, and so that's going to lead to less plant growth and so forth on the edges. You've got sunlight hitting the, the ground itself, so you've got lush herbaceous vegetation that's within easy reach. You've got a, typically a dense wall of, of shrubs like blackberries and other uh, species that are also within the deer's ability to reach. You've got young trees growing up, so you just have much denser vegetation growth on the edge. And then out in the open, of course, as well, whether it's a farm field or somebody's yard, there's a lot more much denser plant growth than there is within the interior of the forest. So it really just does boil down to, to food and cover. All right, all right. Now, as 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 a homeowner, and this is a loaded question because I, I know I can't answer this question, yeah. and we get asked this. And it's question the, yeah, all the, the time. probably the number one question we get asked. Are there native plants that that deer don't like? in In my in my experience, I've seen them eat everything depending on available food. So yeah. it's I I just think maybe there's species that they prefer less. Um, yeah, and I don't know if you have any suggestions as far as plant species um, that they like. I think I, you know I've seen them eat sweet pepper bush last, but then areas where they were devastated because there was nothing else there. Yeah, so I I agree. From my experience, it's it's really just a matter of degree. So the the more deer there are in the area, the less there is for them to eat, and the more pressure there's going to be to to eat anything at all that's available to them. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening. So even things that actually have poisons in them, like milkweeds that have latex, mm-hmm. 
uh, and other things, the deer will eat them. <laughs> you know, they're not deer resistant. When the deer numbers get to be 100 per square mile, you're going to get your milkweeds eaten by deer. And you'd never see that when deer, you know, deer numbers are lower and they've got a greater diversity of plants to choose from. Um, so typically it's plants that have chemical defenses or repellents in them, whether it's poisons like latex that you find in milkweeds or um, aromatic chemicals like you find in many mint species uh, or other species that have kind of more pungent aromas. Um, the one that comes to mind is poison hemlock, but that's obviously not native. But things of that kind, you know, can, can be pretty good repellents um, that will do more than other, do better than other plants, uh, everything else being equal. The other kind of group of plants that you um, tend to see less impacts to are species that have mechanical defenses, like really nasty thorns. So bull thistle, for example, is usually one of the last species in, in meadows to survive when deer populations get to be too high. It'll be nothing but, you know, bull thistle and grease grass because they, they have either chemical or uh, mechanical defenses. But ultimately, the deer will eat those too if there's nothing else to eat. So you, there's a, you know... 2,000 different plant species in New Jersey, and quite a number of them have uh, defenses of either of those kinds, chemical or mechanical, that can do something at least to repel deer, um, especially if, you know, if your town or your p parks nearby are doing a good job at managing deer populations and bringing their numbers down, those, uh, that'll have an impact on what you can, you're able to grow in your yard. But, you know, that's not particularly satisfying to only grow things that are poisonous or <laughs> nasty to touch. Um, so there's other things you could do, aside from putting up a full-blown deer exclosure and, you know, fencing out the wild world from your backyard. Deer also don't like to jump into small enclosed spaces. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my town has 130 deer per square mile, and I refuse to give up growing vegetables, but I also don't want to put an 8-foot deer fence, you know, in my backyard. So I put in a little 4-foot fence around my small 20- to 20-foot mm -hmm. garden, and the deer just don't won't jump into it, and so it you know okay. really, and same thing with landscape plants. If you just put a small border around those plants, whether it's you know against your house um, or in you know small enclosures, islands in your yard, whatever it is that you're trying to, to grow and manage, if it's a relatively small space, the deer are averse to jumping into those kinds of places, and so you might have better luck with simple um, measures like that that are going to be m much uh, more visually appealing and less you know expensive uh, and difficult to install and maintain uh, thank you i was unaware yeah. of that that's that's great yeah. and great. and it's also interesting um so we do a lot with the wildflower seed and one of the issues we have is with deer eating specifically smooth aster they just it seems to be the only they'll eat a couple other species but that's one that they it's just a magnet for the deer they all come and eat that species and really do a lot of damage to it uh, when I've talked to other seed producers in other parts of the country, well, they have all have their own few things that the deer seem to favor. And uh, even some of them, we usually recommend um, the Menardas to be more right. deer resistant. Well, I've talked to other seed producers who said, oh, they love the Menarda fistulosa and they don't touch the, the smooth aster at all. So I think yeah. some of it is just where you are as well. It, it's not, there's no silver bullet for this. It's... It, it has yep. been such an interesting year for us. For years, we we have had no deer damage on our nursery, uh, or very mm -hmm. very little, and we have three hundred preserved acres that surround us mm -hmm. um, as a nursery. And just this past year, we're getting uh, buck rub. They're actually eating of all the things. They're going to <laughs> into our greenhouses and eating smooth cord grass, our native uh, salt marsh 
bay grass and they're, yeah. they're finding that uh very very tasty mm-hmm. so it's uh it's just really interesting that the trends here because we went from saying oh we never have deer damage yeah and it was hard to answer that question when someone said oh yeah what's deer resistant oh we haven't really had any trials no, <laughs> because I, they aren't they aren't here no but even um, things like you mentioned mechanical uh defenses like ilex opaca maybe isn't something because of the spiny uh Mm-hmm. leaves they wouldn't go after but i've seen a harsh enough winter where they've decimated yeah. american holly and jay when you were just talking about the the deer exclosures it reminded me of i think it was the first class i ever went to in college it was like a biology 101 class and we actually walked around the woods and did a, a fern um identification unit and um but they had a deer exclosure and uh, the professor was even telling us about how they had on a, this is in upstate New York, but in especially harsh winters when they got lots of snow, they'd have a lot of deer that died because they starved to death, but their stomachs were always full, and they were just eating all kinds of twigs and hemlock boughs and all different kinds of things just to try and get some nutrition um, because there wasn't any available to them. They just wouldn't stop eating just because there wasn't something there to eat that was nutritional to them. They just kept trying to find something. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of mind-boggling to think about what it's like, how much the deer need to eat during the winter time to survive in a cold winter. I mean, just picture yourself outside with only a thick coat of fur on, trying to come up with enough energy to sleep through a really cold night. And there's, you know, if you've ever gone on a diet and tried to live off of nothing but salad, that's hard enough, like <laughs> keeping yourself full. They don't even have salad to eat. They've got buds and twigs where the amount of, like, digestible material is really minuscule mm-hmm. in the stuff that they're eating. So you think about how many of those twigs and buds and whatever's out there in the wintertime, those poor animals have to eat to get enough energy to survive. I mean, it must be acres worth of these plants. Um, And I think that's what what really helps me think about, you know, the impact that a single animal is going to be having out there. Just picturing myself (laughs) trying to eat (laughs) enough salad to survive through a cold night and then taking the the step away from that to think about, all right, well, what if I just had buds and twigs to eat? How much harder would it be even than that? Um, and I think that for me that puts that in perspective. Yeah, all that all that transference of energy that they would get from say perennials that aren't there come winter, so their whole their whole diet mm. has to change or or mostly change yeah. over the winter. And and while we're on yeah. the topic of deer food, what's what is something that they like to eat? What are some plants they prefer over uh, over other plants? Uh, well, most of the studies that have looked at this uh, immediately point to species in the lily family. Trillium and different lily species just get whacked right away. Um, in terms of trees, deer love to eat hemlocks, actually. Um, they Even very low levels of deer will start to impact hemlock regeneration in the northern forests. Um, but they are generalists, so it's, it's not easy to, to say with all that much certainty that this is the number one preferred plant. But we are seeing impacts to really a, a, an incredible wide array of our species. So many of our flock species in New Jersey are now endangered, and I think one of the main drivers of that is the deer population. And all you have to do is try to grow flocks in your backyard around here to find out how much deer like to eat that species. Um, so it's, you know, there are certain orchids that the deer like to eat, although others they seem to not prefer as much. Um, and in some cases, it's not the entire plant. It might just be a certain part of the plant mm-hmm. or at a certain uh, time in its life cycle when the you know the plant's full of energy and about to open its its buds deer will eat them at that point but after the flower is out they will just walk right away from it and not touch it so it's it's highly variable and uh difficult to kind of point your finger at and say you know 
these species first, then these species, and so forth, because there's so many other factors that come into play, whether it be seasonality, local uh, food availability, the, the deer numbers, time of year, and so forth. I, I think it's funny you mentioned lilies and trillium just because uh, that's not something I even really see anymore. So mm-hmm. it's, it yeah. makes sense. Uh, I, I guess you could say they love maple leaf viburnum because yeah. <laughs> they've, they've basically for sure no in terms of the shrub part. layer it's viburnum is number one mm-hmm. and um but you know it's the same thing spice bush has got you know, really fragrant um twigs and leaves and the deer will leave that alone at first but then the deer numbers get high enough and they're, they're going to start to eat the spice bush just as much as anything else um so they'll start with the tastiest easiest things to eat and then they kind of move on from there is there any new study or any misconception that the general public should know? Um, just, I mean, we've discussed a lot, but is there any anything groundbreaking or any new theories that that or or something that the general public, like we talked about, loss of habitat being a factor, and it's not as big of a factor as we think. Is there is there any misconception or or thought that you would like to share with the general public, just as a, as they should know? Um. I mean, the, the most common misconception is the one that we already talked about, that, you know, that hunting um, and and reduction of deers is, is an animal rights concern. Mm-hmm. You know, that it really is from that perspective that I think we need to manage deer mm-hmm. because it's supporting the greater life of these ecosystems that the deer are, are um, degradating. Uh, besides that... Um, You know, just thinking about it in a bigger perspective, that it's not just about the plants in your yard and and so forth, but it's about the ecosystems that we're a part of as a whole. And beginning to think about the connections that we have to how we're managing our, our landscapes in our yard and how that's affecting the surrounding forests and, and the ecosystems that all these other creatures are beginning, that are need to depend on for their survival. So what you plant in your yard makes a huge difference for what ends up in the forest next door. And supporting, you know, deer management um, is really critical for us to begin to re- recover the, the quality of our habitats in New Jersey. So going beyond like our own self-interest and what we're trying to get our yards to look like, you really need to support efforts to manage deer in your local park systems and your local townships because these are controversial issues, um, but largely because it is that vocal minority of people that are um, making things difficult for local officials and park managers to do what needs to be done to bring these ecosystems back into place. So being vocal and getting involved and trying to support initiatives uh, at the local level or the state level, for that matter, are, are really critical to um, helping to move move forward and, and restore our ecosystems in the way that we need to. And I really feel this is a man-made problem. This, this problem occurs uh, because of things that humans have done because I think generally in nature, in healthy ecosystems, predators don't don't they won't wipe out their prey <laughs> you know there's a balance they that they right. they may fluctuate where there's more predators at this time and more prey at this time but they they coexist we're the only species that wipes out <laughs> you know i think we're the only species that will wipe out other species mm-hmm. totally so it's yeah you know we're really the equivalent of a meteor hitting this planet in terms of what we're doing to the biodiversity of life on earth mm-hmm. and we really need to start thinking more seriously about how we conduct ourselves individually and as a society if we want to keep all these species around with us into the future mm-hmm. and not deprive future generations of all the wonders and joys that they have to offer for us. And it's, our, it's a failure of our own awareness and intelligence to, uh, 
to appreciate what we have and and not to ruin it um, because that's what's happening right now in some in some ways directly in some ways like with deer indirectly and we you know it, it is a mandate I, I agree with you it's it's uh and I think we're at levels unseen levels mm-hmm. of this where we're we're starting to see so many areas that that need to be fixed um because like like you were saying if it's it's not just one thing that they're they're depleting forests of understory but all the other species or insects that depend on those Mm. that are now in decline you know it it seems like no matter who we have on and what we talk about it's in decline (laughs) except deer except for deer deer. (laughs) yeah except for deer but but you know but it's not hopeless you know and and Mm -hmm. it there's there's if anything there's opportunities for people to get involved and for good work to be done uh, and it really is essential if we want a future that's worth passing on. But for as far as deer management goes, you know, we have lots of conservation groups and local towns and park systems that have taken this issue seriously in the past 20 years and have had really good results in managing the deer populations and bringing them down to a level where we're starting to see really significant improvements in local ecosystem qualities. And not just that, but reductions in deer vehicle collisions, mm-hmm. benefits for local farming and landscaping, uh, and so forth. So if you go to Duke Farms, for example, there's about a you know, two or 3,000 acre preserve in Hillsborough in, in Somerset County. They've been managing deer for the past 15 years or so, and they've actually been able to bring it down to uh, 10 deer per square mile mm-hmm. within their large deer exclosure. And then outside the exclosure, they've brought it down to about 30 per square mile. And if you go into that preserve and you walk the trails there, you can't see five feet into the forest mm-hmm. because they're just so full of young trees growing and shrubs returning and the native vegetation bounces back all on its own without any planting whatsoever. And it's, you know, with all they did was just bring deer back in, under control. And, and that's not a simple matter. It takes a lot of effort and energy and a lot of um, the right incentives being put in place to, to make it work. Um, they, but they've done it, and, and we can see the ecosystem restoring itself as a result. And many other places have done that as well. Uh, so I think there's opportunities here, and the more people can that can get involved and educate themselves and get active locally to try to bring um, the deer population under control, the more of these kind of benefits we're going to see returning to us uh, in the, the natural world around us. Very well said. Mm-hmm. We actually had the folks from Duke Farms on, and we yeah. discussed their deer management plan. Yeah, and, uh, and if people at home haven't listened to that, that was episode two. That was our, our first and only in studio podcast guests. <laughs> it was that was the only one where we've had guests in the studio but we we actually uh discussed their mm-hmm. deer management program at great length and it's very successful and it's mm-hmm. i think it's it's a good um it's a good roadmap yeah yeah for, for other places like that which there's more than one would think there's a lot of preserves and and sanctuaries i guess is that can utilize that roadmap because that's not an area that's void of deer no definitely not <laughs> definitely not all right, Jay, we, we end every Oh, ep- we're not done yet, Fran. Oh. I had, I had one more thing, and this is oh, something I'm okay. stealing from another podcast. All right, all right. But I'm going <laughs> to rephrase it here. So, Jay, if you were the supreme leader of the, the state, world, country, whatever you want to make it, um, and now we have Dr. Jay Kelly is is supreme leader, and he's going to fix no, the thanks. deer problem. I'm not in, interested. <laughs> he's going to fix the deer problem in New Jersey. What's what's your plan for deer? Yeah, to, just to to, to bring us back to to I guess nineteen seventy levels. We won't hold you to this. <laughs> um, 
So you're asking me if I had the ability to do anything necessary to control the deer population, what would I do? Yes. If you, if we, we got to bring it back to like 19, was it 1972, I think you said, when they, they got it back up to those levels, or was that when they introduced them? I don't remember. But um, yeah, what would you do if you had complete control, what would you do to bring deer levels back to that healthy level? Uh, geez, there's, there's a lot of things that could change. You know, I think it's, <laughs> if people were willing, the, the, the thing that would make me happiest is bringing wolves back to New Jersey. As, as difficult as that might be and, and maybe infeasible for political or even biological reasons, that probably would be enough to do the trick. But if that didn't work, um, trying to create better incentives and greater awareness within the hunter community about how hunting can actually be a service to society. It's not just about filling your fridge with meat and putting a, a trophy on the wall. You're actually benefiting forests and public health and public safety as a result. And I think if we went back to the 1970s and did something to change hunter perspectives to start managing for does instead of for bucks mm -hmm. and keeping the levels at that at that you know 10 per square mile or so that we had back then creating incentives to try to get more people hunting and um and so forth i think that could that could have done a, a world of good in the world we have today you know where we're at 100 per square mile or so on average um you know we clearly need to do a lot more than just uh support recreational hunting because it's mm -hmm. it, the the task is much greater than the casual hunter can really accomplish and so whether it's a matter of changing incentive systems and policies to uh, subsidize the hunting that goes on uh, to encourage hunters to take more than they personally need and you know there's great programs where you can donate uh, deer meat to a program called hunters helping the hungry where the food gets sent to local food pantries um, there's ways that towns and the state could subsidize that that they're not doing currently that could do a world of good and there's even some talk that I think is worth exploring about returning to some sort of regulated commercial hunting system where there's actually economic incentives for hunters to take more than what they personally need. Mm -hmm. And that could be a dangerous game to play because that's what led to deer being more or less, less exterminated throughout most of their range yeah. in the past. But if it was regulated and monitored and conducted carefully, I think there's some hope that that could come yeah. to, to and, good as well. I'm just going to throw something out there just for, for people at home who might not probably don't know this but if uh if you're at a restaurant or you're um even buying a pack of beef jerky and it says venison on it it's actually not uh our local deer it's actually uh, typically it's red deer or some kind of um uh other deer from somewhere elsewhere in the world because it's illegal i think across the entire united states to trade in game meats you can't buy or sell them in any way it's legal to serve them Wow. Um, so well, I, keep that in mind when, I, <laughs> when you're looking gonna, at that stuff. I was going to say when, when I worked at Princeton Nurseries, which was 3,000 acres, in, it stretched over Mercer, Monmouth, and uh, Ocean County. It was kind of where they meet. And the deer deprivation permits we had, those deer, after they were shot, had to be – you had to dig a pit mm -hmm. and bury them. Yeah. So you couldn't sell the food. You couldn't give the food away. Yeah. And it's no longer the case anymore. Okay, that but, was um, – that's going back like 15 yeah, years. Yeah, now it's – they they encourage you to give it to, to hungers, or hunters helping the hungry or uh, different food shelters and those kind of things. But people were so fanatical yeah. and upset over that that they were chopping down our trees and leaving yeah. signs saying deer killers. So they were destroying nature – 
as well. Yeah. You know, they were still destroying a living but, uh, living thing. But Jay, I was I'm really happy you brought up the the whole hunting aspect of it because growing up in a rural community where I I've hunted all my life, but that was kind of what we were always taught is oh you don't shoot does because that could be the the fawns that it gives birth to could be the next big buck and you always want to shoot the big buck and um, I don't want to give away too much of what our our uh, next guest is going to talk about, but um, their his whole organization's mantra is is really con- having healthy deer herds, not necessarily. Uh, and when you have healthy deer herds, that's when you get bigger deer or more. Um, the horns don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, yeah. but it's they'll actually go and go to properties and say, "Hey, you have a hundred deer per square mile or fifty deer per square mile," or, and you have of those hundred. Uh, 25 of them are bucks and 75 are does. You really want it to be 50-50, so you need to kill this many does for every buck you kill. And that's part of their management strand, or management plans that they give out to some of these these properties. So it is changing. It's not changing across the hunting community as a whole. And that's... Uh, so I was happy you brought that up because that really ties in to where we're going next time. It does. That's perfect. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else, Tom? Uh... I have one more thing, okay. but I might save it for a final thought. Let me think right, real you quick. Save it? Yeah, I'll save it for a final okay, thought. Okay, so so Jay, we, we always end every podcast with one final question. It's always the same question, and it's a very simple one. And it's – although a lot of people have trouble answering this one. They really yeah. do because it, maybe it's not as simple as, as I think. But uh, what is your favorite native plant? Uh, you're not going to get me to pick a favorite. I am way too in love with way too many plants. Uh, I am polyamorous as far as my love of plants goes, and I'm not going to pick favorites amongst them. They're they're just okay. amazing, and I'm constantly blown away by their their uh, their beauty and splendor. So that's that, that's all you're getting out of me. All right, that that is a very common answer, though. That's we we get that answer a lot. We we get we get a lot more people. You know, it's whatever one I'm looking at now, or they'll narrow it down to like one tree, one shrub. But I will accept that answer. I won't. I I can truly appreciate that. Uh, final thoughts. Final thoughts. Uh, Jay, we allow everyone just to have a final thought. Also, just it just to wrap things up. Uh, if there's anything you'd like to say, or just anything you want to touch back on. Um, now's your now's your time. Well, you know, I think we've already said this a couple times maybe less directly, but, you know, our forests and other ecosystems really are at a tipping point, and um, we need people to get involved and to start taking these issues seriously at home and in their towns and their parks and even at the national level. You know, the extinction crisis that's happening right now is a local crisis. It's not just in Africa on the savannas. It's not just in the oceans. This is a global phenomenon, and it's a preventable phenomenon, and the more people we have that are engaged and informed and willing to get off their butts and turning off their screens to do something good in the world, I think the more we're going to have to pass on to future generations and the less they're going to be shaking their heads at us wondering what we were doing, allowing all this to continue. Um, so thank you very much again for the work you're doing and for uh, you know giving me the opportunity to, to share a little bit about this, this concern uh, to the general public because I think it really is um, a, a critical thing for people to consider and to get involved with. And I think they know that just like we said, it's one of our most requested topics mm-hmm. for the podcast. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on and be able to shed some light. Cause I, I never f- fail to learn something new every time we do this. Tom, do you want me to go next or do you want to go? 
It doesn't matter to me. Because I don't have much, so I can go. Okay, yeah, you can you go. Have the big, since yeah. you saved But the, it's not even <laughs> big final thoughts. It's... <laughs> you know, it's... it. I, I keep looking at this. You know, this when this podcast started off, you know, the focus was native plants and our, our study and our our views and topics keep getting broader and broader and broader, although they're all interconnected. And it's it's really the health of our ecosystem and, and where we're going and what we can do to fix it. And, 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 and you're going to see that coming up on future uh, episodes of the podcast because we're going in directions that – I don't think we ever conceived we would go in um, when we started mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, and, and it's 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 still plant based or, or it's it's ecology based. But, you know, we're going to talk about oceans, ocean health and, and things like that. So it's just I, it's this whole thing has really helped me to to look at a le- much larger scale than just right here in our backyards and what we're doing. So that's, you know, and every guest is really given me an education on on what we know and what we do or what we can do so i i'm appreciative of that all right That's it's it. up to me it's up to mine's you. not very deep mine, <laughs> mine was deep <laughs> it's it every time we talk about deer or and i shouldn't say we anytime i talk about deer and especially specifically deer management or deer control it always is amazing to me that even with like hunting uh, with I know there's all these like contraceptive programs that have happened in in different parts of the Northeast, which I, I probably should have asked you about those. I don't know if you know anything about the the things they've tried with contraceptives with deer. Uh, the contraceptives can be effective when you've got captive deer populations and you're trying to keep them from you know. Uh, Reproducing, you know, in a in a zoo, for example, or if you have a, a captive herd uh, on a farm or something. But in the wild, where uh, you've got deer moving across the landscape over great distances, it really um, seems to be infeasible for it to work. Mm-hmm. Um, because to for it to work, a lot of the contraceptives have to be reapplied every year or every couple years, and so you have to actually tag the deer and then keep track of which ones you've inoculated with the contraceptives. Um, and that ends up being really expensive uh, to do and, and has had limited effectiveness. So the, the places and the, the studies that I've seen that have actually experimented with that in the past, it hasn't been successful. And, and on top of that, it's been far more expensive than, than actual effective deer management has been using hunting mm-hmm. of various kinds. Um, there's apparently new generation you know, pharmaceuticals that people are experimenting with now and surgical sterilization and other things, but... Um, I have little faith that those are really going to accomplish what we need to, given the levels of deer that we have. So, you know, when every town has got thousands of deer now to, to manage, the, the prospect of being able to tag and, and inoculate every one of them or a substantial portion of them um, really doesn't seem to be to be a feasible challenge. If we get deer populations down low enough eventually where um, – it would take less work to manage them that way. Maybe that's more feasible, but we're not there yet, and I don't think it's productive to think about it just because we don't like the idea of killing something, you know? Yeah. And while <laughs> while it may be unsavory to, to picture killing large numbers of deer to bring their numbers down, I can't imagine why it's okay to think about surgical sterilization as something that is humane or appealing in any way. That's That seems to be to be equally gruesome 
and full of all kinds of potential unknown consequences for the, the well-being of these animals. So, um, you know, I haven't seen any research that indicates that those programs and techniques have been successful. Everything that I've seen has shown them to be not only less effective but more expensive mm-hmm. and far more expensive at that. Um, you know, typical deer management programs will cost about 20 to $100 per deer for hunting. If it's sharpshooters, you're talking about 100 to 200 dollars per deer. Contraceptives are between 400 and 1,000 dollars per deer uh, to be applied, and um, that's just there's no way that our towns and parks have enough money to even afford that. Okay, that backed up what I was <laughs> what I was going with it, so that was good. But between hunters, sharpshooters, the contraceptive programs are number one weapon against uh, deer overpopulation. It's still been cars. And that just blows me away when you start thinking about all these other control methods that we're, we're trying to use, that it's, it's cars have been the most effective. So it's, we, need to, we need to come up with something better, and I think what you've been talking about is that something better. So I agree. I agree. It would be cool to have wolves around here. I agree. I agree. But, uh, you know. Also an issue. But, <laughs> but it would be, it would be uh, cool until someone got... <laughs> got eaten by a wolf but then it wouldn't be so anyway thank you all again for joining us today we hope you enjoyed listening to native plans uh no yeah but fran i just gotta quit on this Man. we hope yeah. you enjoyed listening to native plants <laughs> healthy planet podcast and uh and dr jay kelly from raton valley community college uh make sure you look up his research and uh and any research you can find on on deer habitat and i'm gonna put up that uh that deer and, and earthworms thing, the link. Right. Awesome. I found it when we were when we were talking there a little bit. So I've put that in our Facebook group. Um, again, thank you guys for listening to the podcast. And uh, all right, you you yeah. can listen to the Native Plants uh, Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out at Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or you can just ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Uh, we're going to give a big thanks to Stephen Mahar for contributing to our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pinelands Nursery, uh, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and oh, Twitter is actually Pineland Nursery. I'm, I've been screwing yeah. that up too. We yeah. got to switch back. You, I like I like uh, the other like way better. All right, next episode we'll 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 switch it back. Uh, go check out our YouTube channel, which is also at Pinelands Nursery, and. I mentioned it a couple times. Join our our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, we're gonna have a lot of a lot of good conversations in there, and I'm expecting a lot of good conversations to become of this podcast when when it's released. So uh, let's keep that conversation going. Thanks again. I'm Tom, and I am Fran. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much. Uh, I I love this episode. Thank you for for last minute agreeing to uh, to speak with us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Ah, uh, no no problem. And thanks thanks again, everyone. We'll see everyone next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.